right, good morning, church. Good to see all of you. We're going to dive into God's Word. So if you've got a Bible with you, go ahead and open it up to the New Testament book of 1 Peter, chapter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by people but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house are being built up to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, and now he's going to quote some Old Testament. See, I lay in a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. So honor will come to you who believe. You see shame and honor right there. Honor will come to you who believe, but for the unbelieving... The stone that the builders rejected, this one has become the cornerstone and a stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over. They stumble because they disobey the word. They were destined for this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So there's this shame and honor piece that's working, and Peter's working on that, right? Shame, you think about shame. Shame is, is a really powerful thing. Shame can paralyze you. Shame can immobilize you. And Peter is concerned that shame is going to immobilize the church, that shame is going to silence the church, that the shame that's being hung around the necks of these first century believers by the Roman world around them is going to silence their witness. And shame, it does strange things to people. In his autobiography, the world-famous Cuban dancer, Carlos Acosta, he talks about how as a young boy, he was sent to a boarding school far from home, and, and while he was there, he started talking to cockroaches. And if you asked him why, he said, because I felt like we had so much in common. There was just this pall, this cloud of shame over his life. Despite some successes that would take place later on, there was still this struggle. Ed Welch is a, is a wonderful author. He, he's trained in theology, but he also has a a PhD in neuropsychology from the University of Utah. And so he writes with deep insight from the scriptures as well as how we tick as human beings. And here's one of the things he says. In scripture, you will find shame, nakedness, dishonor, disgrace, defilement about 10 times more often than you find guilt. Guilt lives in the courtroom where you stand alone before the judge. Shame lives in the community. Guilt says, you are responsible for wrongdoing and legally answerable. Shame says, you don't belong. You are unacceptable, unclean, and disgraced because you have sinned or wrong has been done to you or you are associated with those who are disgraced and outcast. So shame, you see, it's far more subtle than guilt in that sense, and it's debilitating. Matter of fact, Ed Welch talks about a a time where he was standing in front of a a classroom full of students, and he was gonna be teaching on this topic, and he said it was about 100 students, and he said, I started the class by asking a question, and I thought it was a rhetorical question. He said, I didn't think anybody was gonna raise their hands. Maybe a few people might, 
But he said, I started the class by asking, how many of you have struggled with debilitating shame? And he said, my heart was broken when every single hand in the classroom went up. And he said, I realized in that moment that they came into this class expecting that maybe this would be a safe place to own it. That they lived and struggled with shame. It's a debilitating, it's a powerful thing. And when it comes to Christians and our confidence to go out and speak the word of the gospel, because God has left us in this world to be lights in, in the society, to rescue and pull people and pull a world out of hopelessness and pull a world out of guilt and out of shame. It's a genius strategy, right, of the devil, of Satan. Isn't it a genius strategy for him to wrap shame around the very church who's meant to make eye contact with the world? Because when he wraps shame around the church, we can't make eye contact with the world. We feel like we're on the outside looking in. We're covered in shame. We can't even get out of the starting blocks of mission because we're wrapped in shame. So God pulls up and he wants a word. And he addresses his first century church and he addresses us in this text. God wants his people free from shame. He wants us to live Fearless. He wants us to live unashamed. That's why Paul, and it meant something for Paul to say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Even though this world heaps shame on those who believe this message about Christ and a crucified Messiah, I'm not ashamed. And he marches out with boldness. That's what God wants for his people, for us to not live with shame, but to be freed. And having been freed from shame... He wants us running out into this world, unlocking prison doors and setting people free through the message and proclamation of the gospel of Christ. The one message that goes deep enough and addresses the root of shame. So, question, what does God give us which in the hands of the Holy Spirit enables us to live unashamed? Number one, honor. He gives us honor. God chose you. That's the first main point. God chose you. Again, the, the first century church, they weren't in the cool kids club of the Roman Empire. Look at this quote. It's on the screen from a New Testament scholar. Peter's readers were receiving a barrage of verbal abuse designed to demean, discredit, and shame the believers as social and moral deviants endangering the common good. This procedure of public shaming was employed as a means of social control with the aim of pressuring the minority community to conform to conventional values and standards of conduct. What, what a crafty enemy we have, right? That... that that through the power of shame foisted upon the church by the surrounding culture, he gets us to play scared. He gets us to be f fearful and hesitant and reticent so we can barely engage the world and make eye contact with the world that needs Jesus. What is God saying to these early believers and to us? He's saying, don't forget your identity. And, and what is that identity? He says, a chosen race. 
You're a royal priesthood. Get your head up. You're my holy nation. I've claimed you as my possession. You're my people. Whatever Rome says about you, you're mine. I have claimed you as my own. It's as though God is saying in this text, I need you to hear what I'm saying louder than you hear what they're saying. Louder than this world. You think about the struggle that we have when it comes to mission, when it comes to evangelism. Even living our lives as godly Christians, convinced that his word is true, right? We, We can live, this is so easy to fall into. We can live as Christians like we are starving for the affirmation of the world. Like the thing that we want the most is to be in the in crowd with an upwardly mobile society that's around us, right? We've got to have that. You think about that. That's my teenage years. That's where you see it in such a raw way in your teenage years, right? The, the, the thing that I most feared in high school was that someone would call me a goody-goody, right? I don't know if they even use that word anymore. Probably not. But it was, the, it was the showstopper. Like, if you were a goody-goody, you were out. Goody-goodies were on the outside of all the stuff that mattered at Grace King High School in the 1990s. And that just that word would shut you down, right? As Christians, that can happen to us. We get this sense that the society looks for us to be a certain way and the thing that we want the most, functionally, the thing that we want the most is the applause of the world. And so what do we do? We compromise. We we fold. We do whatever it takes for those people, the people that matter, to notice us. And it not only sears our conscience because we're unfaithful to Christ toward that end, but it's missionally disastrous because the world that is locked in shame needs people who live unashamed and come in their direction with a gospel that frees us. The world needs, needs a church that's in the world but not of the world. The world needs Christians who are willing to bear the shame that Jesus bore. The world needs Christians who are willing to bear the shame that the first century disciples bore as they bore witness to Christ. Can I just say, high school graduates, so we were at a graduation last night, many graduations have been going on all around around the city. Can I just say, high school graduates, college students, we need you, can I, I just wanna exhort you, we need you standing. And by we, I'm not just talking about the Church of Brook Hills, I'm not just talking about your, your Christian parents, The world needs you standing. Your roommate, your fraternity, your sorority needs you standing for Christ, unashamed, joyfully submitted to Christ as Lord. You're my friend, he's my king. Let's just clarify the relationship. I serve him as king and Lord, sharing your hope, not just standing, sharing your hope. That's that's what this world needs. And I love what Peter does. He says, how do you get there? How, how do you get released from the shame that's going to hold us back from being missionally engaged with our culture? He says, come to Christ, the living stone. As you come, not if you come, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by the people but chosen and honored by God, you're being 
built up as a spiritual house. God is establishing something in you as you keep coming to Jesus. Friends, the the Christian faith is not self-help. We get strength from Jesus today or we start losing strength today. That's why Jesus used this language of the vibrant relationship of if you abide in me and I abide in you, you will bear fruit. There's this vibrant, vital, living, day-by-day, moment-by-moment relationship with Jesus that frees us to engage this world. Eyes up. Eye-to-eye contact with this world. As you come to him, you see those words? As you come to him, a living stone, so that living stone is Jesus, and notice what it says about Jesus. Rejected by people, but chosen and honored by God. You see how he's flipping all the metrics of shame and honor? Yeah, he, he was shamed by the world, but he was honored by the Father. He was honored by God. This motivated him. What are we learning here? This is in your notes. We bring the shame this world clothes us in to the one who knows. Shame, if you think about it, it has so much to do with association, right? So we don't feel attached to the right people and so we feel like outcasts. We feel like outsiders. And what is Peter doing in this text? It's a pastoral theology. He's saying, look who's next to you. Look who's associated with you. And it's Jesus. Look down at the page and just let these words jump off. Verse 4, Christ is the living stone. The end of verse 4, believers are living stones. There we are, right next to Jesus. Verse 5, believers are a spiritual house. Verse 6, Christ is the cornerstone of that house. Verse 4, Christ is rejected by people but chosen and honored by God. And then those who trust him are, verse 9, chosen. And verse 7, honored by God. He's saying, look at you. Look who's right next to you. Look who's associated with you. In other words, the experience and destiny of those who come to Christ is bound up with the experience and destiny of Christ himself. You've been joined to him. The the world's shame wasn't debilitating to Jesus. Why? Because he had a louder voice in his ear than the voice of the world and the hostility of the world. I remember um, playing Little League Baseball as a kid. It was my, my favorite sport to play as a kid was Little League Baseball. And coming up to the plate, and there's just a racket of people all around, right? The catcher's trying to get in your head, and, and the fielders and the opposing dugout, hey, bada, bada, bada. They're doing their whole routine, right? And then there's parents in the in the bleachers, right? And there's just noise all around you, and then you're coming up to the plate, and I would do, it was, this is the 1980s, so I would do the Dale Murphy setup. Two of these, and then two of these, right? I'd seen that on TV. Dale Murphy did it. I did the same exact setup and prep. So I'm walking up to the plate. Everybody's talking, and then I know right behind me there's fingers in a chain link fence, and there's words coming out of that mouth, and it's my dad's. And when he starts talking, I couldn't hear anything else. And what's he saying? He said, son, you got this. Hey, good eye, all right? And then the ball comes down and it's high and outside. And he's like, hey, that was a good eye, right? Make him pitch. Keep your eye on the ball. 
Dad's voice breaks through and it, and it breaks through this indistinct noise of the crowd around. That's what Peter is leveraging in this moment. It's in your notes this way. In the gospel, Christians hear an affirmation that is louder than the whole world. What did Jesus hear at the very beginning of his ministry? This is my son. I love him. My beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The affirmation of his father outshouted the entire world around him. You need, Christian friend, if you're going to live unashamed, you need a louder voice that cuts through the noise of this world. Henry Light was um, born in Scotland in 1793. He was abandoned by his father. His father was known as a ne'er-do-well. He was a rascal. He was looked down upon by society. He was lazy. He was derelict in his obligations to his family. And so even when his father did write him, which was not very frequent, when his father did write his son Henry, he would sign uncle at the bottom. He wouldn't even claim his son as his own. And so Light kind of lived under this pall of shame. And he had a very difficult life. And he turned some of his pain he was a natural born poet. He turned some of his pain into verse. And he ended up writing one is one of, what is one of my favorite, all time favorite hymn texts. And in the hymn text, I'm going to read part of it in a moment. You can hear both the pain of his experience, but you can also hear him doing verse four. You can hear him coming to a living stone who was rejected but chosen by God. Jesus, I my cross have taken, all to leave and follow thee, destitute, despised, forsaken, thou from hence my all shall be. So from here on, you're my all. Perish every fond ambition, all I've sought or hoped or known, yet how rich is my condition, God and heaven are still my own. Let the world despise and leave me. They have left my Savior too. Human hearts and looks deceive me. Thou art not like them untrue. Oh, while thou dost smile upon me, God of wisdom, love, and might, foes may hate and friends disown me. Show thy face and all is bright. Association with Jesus reframes all of the honor and shame dynamics in this text. You want to live unashamed? You come to him as a rock. You come to him as a living stone. You remember whose you are. You remember your identity through the grace of God. So number one, this text gives you a gift, gives you honor, reminding you God chose you as a follower of Jesus. Number two, mission. Brought near, we bring others. Brought near, we bring others. Verse 9 really summarizes our whole passage. We're chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, his own people, or a people of his own possession, so that, right? The Christian life has a so that, and the so that in this text is you've been chosen, you've been called by him, so you might proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You know, these words are reaching all the way back. Peter's thinking about the Old Testament. He's quoting the Old Testament all over the place in this passage. He's just weaving them together. 
This passage actually takes you all the way back to the first Exodus when God saved his people out from under the shame and thumb and bondage and oppression of Egypt and Pharaoh. And he rescued his people and brought them through the waters. And then here's what Moses said or God said through him in Isaiah, rather Exodus chapter 19. God said this to his people. Now if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples, although the whole earth is mine, and you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. These are the words that you are to say to the Israelites. In other words, he's, he's saying, yes, I'm going to identify the fact that Aaron and his sons are going to have a special priestly role. But here he says, say to the whole people of Israel, you're my kingdom of priests. That is, there was a sense in which even in the Old Testament, all of them were meant to be priests, mediating the blessing of God to the nations. And we know what ended up happening, right? That, that that mission was aborted in the Old Testament. It didn't take place. And then in the fullness of time, God sends Jesus. Perfect life, goes to the cross to pay for our sins, rises from the dead, and then what does he do? He pours his Holy Spirit out onto the church, and he says what? Now you'll be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Now you'll be a kingdom of priests. This is the priesthood of believers passage, and the priesthood of all believers passage in its original context, is not about church governance. It's not about clergy laity distinctions. It's about mission of the gospel. You are called to carry this gospel forward. Tom Schreiner commented on this passage. He's a New Testament scholar. He said, the church is to mediate God's blessing to the nations as it proclaims the gospel. The declaration of God's praises, that's what he's talking about in verse 9, includes both worship and evangelism spreading the good news of God's saving wonders to all peoples. So what's that mean for us? It means we can't not evangelize, right? We, we press pause on the mission of the gospel. We shrivel as a church. We lose passion for the least reached peoples of the world. That causes us to atrophy. That causes us to become a compromised people who look just like the world. And it's disastrous for all kinds of reasons. One, the world doesn't hear the word from us. And two, we, we're affected in our passion for Jesus and in our worship of Jesus. We lose our sense of purpose and why he's left us here in the world. Verse 9, friends, I hope this changes the way we view verse 9. Verse 9 is the church as God intended it. The church as God intended it, enthralled with Jesus, bold in witness, zealous for Christ's name to be known and his mercy to be tasted in all the nations of the earth, irrepressible praise. That's the church. That's what the church is meant to be. Here's the wrong question. Where does God fit into the story of my life? That's the wrong question. But you know what? That's the question that our culture and even Christian culture would have us ask. Where does God fit into the story of my life? Such a prevalent message in Christian culture. God's going to give you the life that you dreamed of. You do this quick thing, right, that costs very little. It's not going to interrupt your normal scheduled activities or plans or rhythms of life or priorities. You just kind of do this little thing, and then you come in and you get all these blessings. That, that message has no power. The person who hears it 
and walks forward and does the thing, walks back to their seat, and nothing's different. Because it's not a real gospel. It's not the real Christian message. That person goes back to their seat and God is still ancillary to their lives. That person goes back to their seat and Jesus is this kind of domesticated savior. He sits in the corner, he crouches down into the small space we've created for him. We label it kind of emergency God. And that's Jesus for us, right? And that's the message that we export overseas all over the world. In that Christianity, I keep living for myself. The world is dying, but who cares? I'm getting what I need. I'm getting the blessings that I want. I feel good about my life. That message is disastrous, it's lifeless, it's useless, it's unbiblical, it's damning. It's not Christianity. The wrong question is where does God fit into the story of my life? The right question is where does my life fit into the story of God's mission? Now, there's a question Christians have been asking for 2,000 years. Lord, to whom shall we go? Where will you send us? We are ready we are following your orders. I asked one of my best friends, we were having lunch a couple weeks ago, and I asked him, I said, if you had to boil Christianity down, the message of Christian faith, if you had to boil it down to one sentence, and I'm not, I'm not talking about you know, this tribe's favorite sentence in Christianity versus this tribe's favorite sentence. I'm talking about the tribe, the Christianity tribe, the, the, the grace nation, right? For 2,000 years, all around the world, give me a sentence. And he said, Jesus is Lord. And I said, that's a great sentence. I think you're onto something. I think you might be right. And that, that just rung true, right? I left, left that conversation. I was thinking, yeah, that's straight out of Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth, what? Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. Same apostle, Apostle Paul. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3, he said, no one can say what? Jesus is Lord. That is no one can say it and mean it. You can parrot the words. No one can say it from the heart, convinced that it's true. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Jesus is Lord. Think about that. Unpack that a little bit. Jesus, the name Jesus means what? God saves. Yahweh saves. So, what you mean when you say Jesus is Lord is you mean the one who came to save is Lord. That's what Jesus is Lord means. You think about the Lord word. What, is, what does Lordship mean? Lord, Lordship has, the, has to do with the authority to rule. So bring all that together. Jesus is Lord is saying this. The one who came to save now has the authority to rule. Friends, that's our message. <laughs> <laughs> that's Christian faith. The one who came to save now has the authority to rule. What does Jesus say in Matthew 28? We recite it every time we leave. All authority is mine. Go. Go make disciples. Jesus is Lord. What happens? You think about Philippians 2. It brings it all the way home for us. Philippians chapter 2. The curtain comes down on history as we know it. And every knee bows in heaven, earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confesses what? Jesus is Lord. <laughs> We're onto something with that statement, Jesus Christ is Lord. And it, friends, if you hear it rightly, what that means, Jesus is Lord, if you hear it rightly, it is both a promise and a threat. 
And that promise and that threat are both right here implied in our passage. Those who trust in him will not be ashamed. Those who trust in him have a rock to cling to. And what does he say? In addition to that, he says those who don't trust in him will stumble over the cornerstone into judgment. There's a a promise and a threat, depending on how we respond to this rock, this cornerstone God has sent. So out we go into the nations and we're saying, the one who came to save now has the authority to rule. Bow your knee before him, acknowledge him as the one savior and Lord over all. And I would say to you this morning, that same message. Turn to him. Turn to him and be saved. Turn to him for he is God and there is no other. Turn to him for in him is redemption and forgiveness of sins. Turn to him and let his voice drown out the shame of this world that's passing away. Cling to the rock and then live, as Peter says, to proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You think about our efforts in mission here and around the world. What do we talk about? We talk about pray, Give and go, and we add to that send. So we're supposed to all go right here where we are. We send some overseas and in cross-cultural context to go and engage in church planting work around the world. As our East Asia team kind of processes this and they're following God's direction to new fields of ministry, we praise God, right? We praise God for his grace through their lives. We praise God for their labor and their faithfulness that some among the least reached people groups of the earth have heard. And some of them have heard because they went and some of you in this room went and told them. Praise God for that. And now again, just processing some of this in light of God's providence and wisdom, our our friends are going to take the message elsewhere. But the heart doesn't change. The passion doesn't change. We still pray for the way. We pray for the least reached people groups of the world. And we pray with confidence. Because God has many, many believers in that part of the world. And who knows, right? Who knows but that maybe now, as we continue and commit to pray consistently and we intercede for the way people, who knows that this might be the time when God decides it happens now. Now I'm going to swing my sickle into this massive part of the earth and I'm going to reap a harvest that brings Christ glory. Wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't that be totally counterintuitive? But just like God, <laughs> to do that kind of work, oh, we pray for that. And me- so meanwhile, we're, we're not just praying, we're giving Global offering, right? It's, you don't have to wait till December. Global offering, we're giving toward the advancement of the gospel among the nations. Lord willing, the Roots and, Roots and Reach initiative. Lord willing, we'll have missional opportunities that we've only dreamed about for years past that in God's grace we'll have the opportunity to do through kingdom-focused generosity. So praying and giving and going. In the midst of all of that, hopefully you and me, right here, are sharing, are evangelizing, are telling the person next to us, are talking to our neighbors, engaging, are rocking the block this summer, right? We've got opportunities all around us. 
Honor, God chose you. Two, mission, brought near, we bring others. And third, finally, belonging, we have a forever family. We have a forever family. I love what he says. Once we were not a people, see that in verse 10? Now we are God's people. Once we had not received mercy, now we have received mercy. You ask verse 10 the question, what is the church? And you say, give it to me, give me the answer in a noun. It says, we're the people of God. And you ask the question in verse 10 and you say, okay, tell me again, what is the church? This time, give me a verb. It says, we're the ones who got mercy. We have, once we had not received mercy, now we have received mercy. We're the we didn't get judgment, we deserved people. We're the we got mercy people. We're the who could have ever imagined we would get this from a holy God people, and we never get over it. Christian leader summarized just this week the gospel on Twitter. I, I just love this. We're justified in the courtroom and then adopted into the family. It's like the judge who says two shocking things. One, you're not going to the gallows. Two, you're actually coming home with me. That's mercy. That's the mercy of our God. Our core identity, Brook Hill's Christian friend, is we have received mercy. That's why it makes sense for believers in Christ to be fluent and becoming more fluent, proficient and becoming more proficient in the art of mercy. We're really good at mercy, we're getting better at mercy because we keep getting it in massive supplies. It keeps pouring into our lives from this merciful God. So, so we run to the side of the weak and the weary and the isolated and, and we bear burdens with people. We don't stack weights on people. We're learning this because we just keep getting more and more mercy. Here's, here's the question for us to think about. Does our helping hurt? Is our tenderness as a church abrasive? Are we Job's friends? Right, remember Job? Job, in the Old Testament, he experienced all this just, all this suffering broke loose in this man's life, and his friends pull up a chair, and they're like, I know you've suffered deeply, and here are 50 reasons why it's mainly your fault. And that's what they were doing, kind of just pouring on this. I'm so glad we're here to help. We're here to offer these truths. And it just feels like just grenades going off right at ground zero where this guy's whole world fell apart. Is that us as a church? Is that us as Christians? Is that our small group? A church needs to learn the art of both toughness and tenderness. And, and here's part of the challenge is making sure we don't distribute toughness where tenderness is desperately needed. And on the other hand, applying tenderness when toughness is called for. So maybe, maybe the tenderness challenge comes to your small group this week. What happens if maybe this week in small group or your community, uh, the person says at the end of the meeting, okay, let's take prayer requests, and it's not predictable prayer requests. Somebody goes dark. Somebody says, Okay, it's taken me a long time to say this, but I tried to end my life five weeks ago. I know you weren't ready for that. I told you five weeks ago why I missed small group. I lied. That was the real reason I missed small group. 
What if they, what if they come out with what's real? I'm, or they say, I'm struggling with insert an addiction or a struggle that Christians never own in public settings, never fess up to. I'm battling with that thing we never talk about. What are you going to do? Is there a kind of shocked gasp, or do we push in? Do we come closer? Church, if we taste the mercy of God, if we are identified as the people who have received mercy, more and more we're not going to be guilty of pulling back from people who need us to come further in. More and more, the gospel is not going to feel like a message or exhortations that come through a bullhorn. It's going to feel like news that comes with a family, with hugs and tears and prayers and comrades and shelter and shade. Because why? Because we've tasted mercy and we've got oodles of supplies of mercy because once we were not a people, this is our story, once we were not a people, now we're God's. Once we hadn't received mercy, now we have. God forbid, God forbid that we would be a congregation of half-hearted people moderately wowed by the mercy of God, but that we would be floored by mercy, that instead of that, we would be a people who come thirsty. We come drinking freely from the wells of salvation, and not just for ourselves. We grab one pitcher for a thirsty brother and another pitcher for a thirsty world. That's what Peter's holding out before the church, a people who are worshiping him, acceptable sacrifices to God. A church that never gets over mercy will be marked by white-hot worship that's ignited by the Spirit of God and focused like a laser on the glory of God in Christ. And a church that's wowed by mercy and never gets over mercy is drawn into fellowship together where shame is displaced by a culture of grace. It's constantly flowing toward broken people. And not only our fellowship, but a church that never gets over the mercy of God is a force for healing in the world and Christ-exalting mission in the world. That church, this church that Peter's gunning for and God is gunning for, that church is unstoppable. Not because of anything in them, but because they stand on a rock that can't be shaken and because they unashamedly carry a message that rescues a world locked in shame. May that be us as a church, amen.